As we get started today, I want to um, uh, I want to ask you for something. I want to ask for you to pray for uh, for for me, uh, for Pastor Otis, uh, for Dr. Steve, Mary. In a couple of weeks, we're going to head off to Ghana on a mission trip, and I'm really excited about this. We get to explore a church planning opportunity uh, there in West Africa, and hopefully, there's a way to connect that with some of the things that we already have going on uh, in in Guinea. And it is our hope uh, that we get to be a gift to uh, and a resource to and to be able to serve local pastors there. So I'm really uh, looking forward to that. Just ask that you guys would pray uh, for us and that. Also, I have an announcement, especially for those of you who like to bring uh, kiddos into the service. Next week, this is just a standalone message. We're going to be talking about what does it mean to follow Jesus' leadership with our bodies. We're going to be talking uh, about uh, sexuality. I've already talked to my son. He's going to be in the service. He's very much looking forward to it, as you can imagine. Um, but for those of you who have kiddos and you're just in a point you don't feel like answering questions right now, take advantage of our fantastic kids ministry. And for those of you who are keeping track, yes, I'm preaching on money and then sex and leaving the country. Um, that's, yeah. It was 17 years ago this weekend. My wife, my wife and I looked at each other without even saying a word. We both instantly knew, instinctively knew, if we don't do something, we could die. It was a typical Sunday morning. We were getting ready for church. The TV was on. We were watching the news, and the weather report had changed overnight. Hurricane Katrina was now heading straight for New Orleans, and we were directly in its path. We lived in a mobile home, and riding out the storm simply was not an option. That Sunday was a scramble as I fulfilled my church obligations and that we managed to get three states away to be able to find safety. The next morning, we woke up to this news coverage. You probably remember some of it, but this is the kind of images we saw. The city was underwater. This is a picture from the seminary that I attended. This is a street sign, and that's how high the water was. People from my seminary and really people from all over the city of New Orleans would be displaced all over the country. Heather and I ended up in her hometown in Northern California. And word got out that uh, a young family who were refugees of Hurricane Katrina were, were coming to town. And we were a very young couple. We had a cute little two-year-old girl. And so people by the hundreds tripped all over themselves, making their way towards us with kindness and generosity. Before we even landed, somebody had already given us a minivan, and you would have to know my wife to know what an ironic blessing from the Lord that is. She's not a minivan kind of gal, and I was thanking God for that. <laughs> Without even being interviewed, she was just given a job. People inundated us with all kinds of gifts. Um, our daughter had missed out on being able to have her second birthday party because of the hurricane, so our new church in California threw her a birthday party. There was a doctor in our new local community uh, who wanted to help us get on our feet, and so he invited us to, us to his house to give us a bunch of furniture. And not like extra furniture that was just in his basement. He gave us his furniture that he used all the time. He gave us all of his bedroom furniture. He just wanted to help us get back on our feet. It became embarrassing how much people were giving to us. We had to ask people to stop giving us gifts. And then the FEMA agent showed up, and it was just his job to cut checks, to give away government money for free to people like us who were refugees from the hurricane. And I wish you could have seen the look on his face when we said, we'll pass. We don't need any money. 
And that was not a political statement on our part. We had just been given so much, we could not in good conscience take any more money. And I don't think this had ever happened to that guy before. And it created some real paperwork confusion. He was like, you're going to have to sign something. <laughs> We're like, well, okay, we will. Hurricane Katrina was simultaneously the worst natural disaster to date in the history of our country. And it was one of the most cherished times in mine and Heather's life. And I don't at all intend to minimize the heart-wrenching despair that too many people experienced because of it. Don't want to minimize that. And yet we were cocooned inside of unrelenting, overwhelming, life-changing generosity. How has your life been impacted by generosity? What generosity story could you tell? And what's a generosity story that you would like to one day be told because of what you did with your life? Believe it or not, one of the central plot lines of the biblical story is this. It's generosity. Probably the most well-known verse in the Bible is John 3, 16. It says, for God so loved the world that he, he did what? He gave. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God loves you so much that he held nothing back. You are loved and you are treasured beyond measure. Do you know that? Do you feel that today? And if anyone has ever wondered, why do sometimes Christians act weird? That's because of this right here. And the reason that I probably seem weird to some people is because of this. When you experience this, it'll make you different. It fundamentally, profoundly will deeply change someone, transform someone. We're about to read some words. It's why the Apostle Paul would go on to write the words that we're about to read. It's why the words that we're about to read would become our anthem and should be the anthem of every Jesus follower everywhere. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. Jesus died for us and was raised again. And last week we read this and, and we, we also read the surrounding verses that come along with this that are an implication of this and we teased out. We teased out what that means for us and we talked about how that impacts what we do with our money and giving and still you came back today. Thank you. Today we're going to read another verse that comes just shortly after this. It's a verse we read last week but there's a part of it that we didn't really get to emphasize. Verse 20 says this, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. We are his ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The man who wrote these words, we know him as the Apostle Paul, and he intentionally on purpose used a political reference to picture what it is that we're supposed to do. And these words were written at the height of the Roman Empire. And everybody who read these words originally, everybody who first heard them, they would define what we're supposed to do based on a Roman understanding of being an ambassador because that's all they knew. And the Apostle Paul intentionally used a Roman perspective to communicate something very important about the gospel and what it means for us to live for Jesus and not for ourselves. The Roman Empire was comprised of provinces, and those provinces were categorized in two ways. 
One set of provinces were called senatorial provinces, and the other set of provinces would be the uh, imperial provinces. And the senatorial provinces, those were the provinces where all the people were happily under Roman rule. The local government was happy to be under Roman authority. The imperial provinces, on the other hand, the people were not happy to be under Roman rule. The local, government was, the local governments were not happy to be under Roman authority. Which provinces do you think the Roman Empire sent their ambassadors to? Not to you guys, to you crazies. They sent their ambassadors to the people who were unruly, who were on the verge of rebellion, who were not happy to be under rule and authority. And the Apostle Paul is saying, that's what we get to do. We get to represent King Jesus to people who don't yet see him as the authority or don't want him to be the authority of their lives. We have the privilege of a lifetime. We get to show what the king is like to those who aren't yet eager to or happy to or understand what it means to be under the authority of King Jesus. The privilege of a lifetime to show others what he is like and the way that we do that happens inside of their experiences with us. And if you're up for that, and I think you are, this is what this means for our church. This is what this means for every church. This body should embody what King Jesus is like. Whenever we read the New Testament and we read about churches or we read about the collection of Jesus' followers who come together, there are two dominant ways that that's described throughout the New Testament. One is the Greek word ekklesia, which means congregation. And the other way that it's described is we're described as a body, as the body of Jesus. And this body should embody what King Jesus is like. And that includes generosity. Now, talking to this church about generosity feels about as urgent as trying to convince you that medical care is important. You get it. And this church has a long track record of rich generosity, and it extends back decades. I mean, the, the track record and the reputation that this church has with generosity is part of what attracted Heather and me to want to come here, and it is a privilege to simply be a part of it. But if it's okay with you, I want to ask some questions today about generosity, and it might feel like I'm messing with you. It's not my goal to mess with you. My goal is to think with clarity, to think well, and faithfulness to God's Word, faithfulness to the text is my top priority. And so these are some questions that I have. Here's my first question. Is all giving generous giving? If you feel brave, you can kind of lean over and whisper to the person sitting next to you what you think your answer is. What do you think? Is all giving generous giving? My son and I share an unfortunate addiction to McDonald's cheeseburgers. And every time we're in the drive-thru and I'm wrapping up my order, the person on the other end of the speaker, they ask this every time, would you like to round up your bill to the nearest dollar to make a donation to the Ronald McDonald House? Now, the max that I'm going to have to round up is 99 cents. Here's my question. If I do that, am I generous? What do you think? Now, listen, this strategy that, that McDonald's has, I think it's good. It's probably not just good. It's probably genius. In 2018, my fellow junk food junkies donated $50 million uh, to that effort simply by rounding up. Only a cynical person would say that's not good. Of course it's good, but that's not my question. My question is, 
Does that count as me being generous? I'm going to leave it to you to decide. I don't want to be the generosity police. I don't think I'm qualified to be the generosity police. But my goal is to get us to think intently, to get us to think intentionally, which really leads us to this question, well, what is generosity? Again, I'm not qualified to be the generosity police, but I'll tell you, I don't think it counts as generosity. It's probably not generosity if the giving is an obligation. Like, I think it's good that I feed my kids. But does it count as generous when I give them food? When they're teenagers, it's expensive. But I don't think that counts as generosity. It's probably not generosity when it's a transaction. When I give Quick Trip money for gas, I don't think that counts as generosity. There are a lot of words I could use to describe what that feels like lately. Generosity is not one of those words. Good obligations, good transactions, I think are just something other than generosity. And I don't think generosity can be defined by an amount or percentage. That's not how generosity works. And if we take Jesus seriously, following his lead, the way he talks about it, it's as though he makes whatever amount we give almost irrelevant. There was a time that that Jesus and his crew, his disciples, the entourage that traveled with him, they were at the temple and they were sitting back and they were watching rich folks come and make their financial donations to the temple. And I imagine it looked very impressive. But there was this impoverished widow who walks up. She had two copper coins and she dropped them in the place where you gave your financial donation. And Jesus stopped the show and he used it as a teaching moment. I just want you to imagine if something like that happened at church. Imagine that we're giving at church, right? And I say, hey, whoa, whoa, did you guys see how much she gave? Can we talk about that for a second? Now, can we talk about how much she gave? And we're going to compare it to how much these people right here gave. Who's coming back next week if I do that? (laughs) Now, listen, if there's anything about this message that feels awkward, just know Jesus takes it to a whole new awkward level. Jesus stops and he starts talking about how much this woman gave. And then he says this, truly I tell you, this is Luke 21, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. This is either nonsense or brilliant truth. And you get to decide how you want to respond to Jesus today. But notice he did not say in some kind of descriptive abstract way, she's more generous than everybody else. He said, no, she gave more than everybody else. And he went on to describe the reason that he said that was because she gave from her poverty and she gave all that she had. God counts differently than we count. He looks at things that we tend to ignore. It's not that Jesus doesn't know how to count. He's counting something different than amounts. It is a calculus of the heart. If we were to try to reduce generosity to an amount, We've missed the heart of Jesus. And today what I want to do is I want to turn back to some things that the Apostle Paul had to say. Last week and this week, we're we're really focusing in on a couple of things that he had to say to a church in the city of Corinth, specifically about what we do with our money and how we give and how we engage generosity. And the Apostle Paul What we're going to see is he talks about something, he celebrates, he promotes something that I think we can understand as a New Testament framework for giving, but it probably should come with a warning label because I think it is both clear and probably offensive. I think it's potentially offensive, especially to folks who don't follow Jesus. 
And I also think it has the potential to really agitate some of us who do follow Jesus. And before we read 2 Corinthians 8, let me give you the backstory. There's an area of the world called Judea, and there were churches in Judea who were suffering from devastating, life-threatening poverty, probably related to being persecuted. The Apostle Paul and some other leaders uh, kicked off a generosity campaign around Asia Minor and the Mediterranean world to collect financial donations from other churches to go and serve this group of churches in their urgent need. And it wasn't a command to give. There was no demand to give. It was an invitation. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, he tried to talk out a set of churches from giving. There's a group of churches in Macedonia. He tried to talk them out of giving. They insisted on giving, and then he couldn't help but brag about it. And that's what we're going to read now. He's writing to a church in Corinth. He says this, and now brothers and sisters, we want you to know We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Why is he so amazed? He says this, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich, what's this word? So they're in their own difficulty. He describes them as poor and yet they chose to be generous. And generosity, it really doesn't have anything to do with how much money we have. It really has everything to do with coming to terms with how God has been generous to us in Christ and all we have in Jesus. He goes on, he says, I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability as though perhaps God supernaturally empowered their financial giving. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service. Now I've been a pastor for a long time. Nobody's urgently pleaded with me. Rick, can I please give more money? Maybe that'll happen today. I don't know. But these people, they urgently pleaded, do do not judge us because we're poor. Don't profile us. We want to be a part of this. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. Compelled by love, they pushed themselves to the extreme limits of their ability and even beyond. And this is the point where I think Paul holds up and celebrates what I'm referring to as a New Testament framework for giving. He says this, they gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then after that, by the will of God also to us. First of all to the Lord and then to this generosity campaign. And what does it mean that they gave first of all to the Lord? Going back to the things that we looked at last week uh, and the other things the Apostle Paul had to say to the Corinthian church, what we're looking at here, I think what the Apostle Paul is saying, they gave themselves first to their local congregation to fund the gospel movement. And then in addition to that, after that, they gave to this generosity campaign. So this is, I think, Paul's New Testament framework for giving. There's faithful giving, which is ongoing giving to a local church and grateful obedience to Jesus to fund the gospel movement. Then there's generous giving, which is freely and without obligation, giving to the well-being of others. I totally understand. I get the impulse to want to to say, any giving is generous. That impulse is inside of me. But if we take the New Testament passages on giving seriously, if we read them honestly and carefully, if we take Paul seriously, Would it lead us to say that or would it lead us to understand that what Paul and other New Testament passages are trying to lead us to understand is that there's faithful giving 
And then it's the giving that comes after that from a New Testament perspective for a follower of Jesus, the above and beyond, that is generous giving. And again, this is why I say I, I, it probably should come with a warning label. I get for some of us, it's like, whoa, I didn't think of it that way. This is kind of disruptive for me a little bit. But this is what I think Paul is presenting. And if it's okay, I'd like to crank up the intensity just a little bit by asking this question. If this is what the New Testament is leading us to, is this the kind of thing that the Apostle Paul is holding up? Would it be okay to compromise faithful giving in order to participate in generous giving? Or would a faithful and honest and careful reading of the New Testament and taking Paul seriously say, if we compromise faithful giving to try and engage in generous giving, it's neither faithful nor generous. It might be good. And it might go to good things, and it might be used to accomplish good things, but it would be an approach to giving that is outside of the New Testament framework for giving. And I get it. I'm kind of in a pickle today. I'm in somewhat of an awkward situation because someone could say to me, well, Rick, this is rather self-serving of you, isn't it? As the pastor of a church, you could just stand up and say, hey, this is how it's supposed to be and slap a biblical label on it and make it sound authoritative. I believe it is my obligation to you, I believe I owe it to you, to teach with clarity and in a way that is faithful to what the New Testament says, and you get to decide if you think what I'm presenting is that. And so I'm asking you, would you carefully consider the words of Paul? Would you carefully consider the New Testament passages about giving? And would you prayerfully consider, is this, is this really what God is trying to get us to understand? I think it is. And if we do that, it kind of leads us to this question, well, what does it mean to give faithfully? Is there an amount attached to that? And there's a question we asked last week, how much should I give? And there are some just really fantastic folks who would advocate and say, in the Old Testament, people gave a tithe, and what that means is 10% of your first fruits or 10% of your income, and you give that to God out of grateful devotion to Him. Because that's the way it worked in the Old Testament. That's the way faithful giving should be defined for us today. And the people who advocate for that, there are many brilliant people, much smarter than me, really good-hearted, generous, wonderful folks. The question is, is that what we believe as a church? Is that what we teach as a church? If you felt ambitious enough, you could go online and you could find messages from years ago when I was serving on, church at, uh, serving on staff at another church where I preached exactly that. Today, I want to share with you why my, give, excuse me, why my thinking has changed, and it's changed for two reasons. One is the Old Testament approach to giving cannot be reduced. It simply cannot be reduced to 10%. Um, 10% giving was only a fraction of how people were supposed to give. Uh, it's absolutely true. People took 10% of their income, and they gave it in grateful devotion uh, to God, um, but they also gave sacrifices and offerings. There were sacrifices and offerings related to repentance for sin. There were sacrifices and offerings uh, related to a broken relationship. It was called a peace offering. And, and you would take maybe a lamb and, and you would take it to the, to, the, uh, to the temple and it would be sacrificed. And then you would share a meal together from that sacrifice with the priest and with people you were in broken relationship with to restore it. It's a beautiful thing. There were sacrifices and offerings related to just praise and worship. And then there were important festivals throughout the year, and people brought uh, sacrifices and offerings to participate 
in that you simply cannot reduce giving in the Old Testament to a 10%. A tithe was only a fraction of how people actually gave. But still, we're just beginning to scratch the surface of an Old Testament disposition towards giving and generosity the way it was supposed to be. In addition to all the things I just listed out, this is the way it was supposed to be. If you were going to lend money to somebody, you don't charge interest. If there was somebody you knew they were in a dire financial situation and you were going to take them on as a worker in your home, this is what you had to do. Number one, you paid off all of their debts. You gave them a living wage. You were responsible to uh, provide for all that they needed. You were also socially and legally responsible to protect their dignity and all of their rights. And when that period of the work agreement ended, you were supposed to send them out with gifts and with a financial starter package so as they started over new in life. Every 50 years, there was something called the year of Jubilee. All debts eliminated, just forgiven. Everybody who was in a worker agreement, like the one I just described, they were released and all of their debts were forgiven. Even if money, excuse me, even if uh, property had been sold legally and appropriately, all property went back to its original owner. And if this was followed faithfully and seriously, it would have permanently eradicated generational poverty. And this was just every year, this is the way that it worked. If you were a farmer, you never harvested 100% of your crop. You always left extra out there unharvested so people who were poor, who didn't own property, could come and collect food for their family in a dignity-honoring way. The approach to giving and generosity cannot be reduced to a percentage. The second reason, the second reason that my thinking changed is there are a lot of instructions to churches in the, in the New Testament, many of whom had no background with Jewish tradition or the Old Testament. They didn't even know about the stuff we just talked about. And there's not one sentence that says, hey, you should give 10%. If that was the expectation, I think that it would be in there. Now, I grew up being taught that tithing is the way to go. That's the way that I grew up. I think it's a beautiful thing. I think it's a great lifestyle. And for anyone who wants to become a giver and wants to become a growing giver, I think it's a great thing to aim at. It's a beautiful thing. I just don't believe that's what the New Testament is trying to lead us to. As a matter of fact, if we follow Jesus and if we take the New Testament seriously, I think we will blow past 10% giving. This is what I think following Jesus leads to. Following Jesus leads to giving faithfully and generously. And last week we talked about this. Today we're trying to make sure we understand the difference between this and this. But today's emphasis is all about this right here, showing what the king is like by the way that we engage in generosity. We live in a city of people who could use a little help in seeing the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of the king. And we help them see what the king is like by how we engage in generosity. But here's the thing. When we engage in generosity, the spirit of God works in us from the inside out, making us more like what Jesus is like. Generosity is a win-win. We cannot lose. And there are countless ways. There are many ways that we all could be and should be engaged in generosity. Today, I want to give us three things that we might want to aim at. I want to invite you to consider. We think about ways that we can be generous. I want to let you know about Shop for Kids. 
Maybe I shouldn't be. Maybe this is a statement about me, but I am continually amazed at the food insecurity and the financial insecurity in our town. Just driving around, it may not be easy to see, but it is real and it is widespread. And Shop for Kids is a way for us to partner with local schools to hit this urgent need head on. And you can find out more about how you can participate with this at autumnridge.church. If you're not a techie person and you don't want to do that, just stop by the Connection Center. But Shop for Kids is a great way for us to partner with schools in the community to respond to a need of generosity. Another way we can be generous is participating in Ridge Fest. We're already talking about Ridge Fest. This happens, I think it's October 29th. If you go out in the lobby, you're going to see we're already collecting uh, candy. Uh, Ridge Fest is a gift from our church to the community. And it is a way for us to build a bridge of relationships with our local community. And the only way it happens is our collective generosity and your individual generosity. Would you be a part of Ridge Fest? And the third way is kind of a way that we already get, but I want to bring attention to it, whatever is going on in your world. Who is somebody in your neighborhood who would be blessed by a little of your generosity? Heather and I are talking about a lady in our neighborhood right now who we're like, how can we need to be generous to her? How can we do that? Who at your school? Where you work? However, the constellation of your relationships plays out, who is somebody that you know who would be blessed by generosity? For years, I sat in messages like this, and I would feel guilty. That's not my goal for you, but I would feel guilty. I would feel bad because I wanted to be generous, but generosity felt impossible for me. And the reason generosity felt impossible is because I was saddled with debt. But that wasn't even my biggest problem. My biggest problem is my money was the boss of me. I wasn't the boss of my money. And taking Jesus seriously plus this resource really helped me get out of that. And the resource I'm talking about is Financial Peace University. There's a class that begins on September 21st. I'd love for you to be a part of it. If you can't be a part of the class, you can. We're just going to give all the digital resources away to you for free. We're giving it to you for free because we want you to be free. And if there's anybody who you are just tired of the debt, or if you are tired of feeling like your money is in charge of you instead of the other way around, take advantage of this resource. Right now, let's end with how we began. How have you been impacted by generosity? What's a generosity story that you could tell? What's a generosity story that you would love one day to be told because of what you did with your life. This body should embody what King Jesus is like, and that includes generosity. We have been ridiculously blessed by God. He has been ridiculously generous with us in Christ. And we have the privilege of a lifetime of getting to represent what the King is like by the way that we engage in generosity. Generosity.